College Football Podcast with Herbie and Pollock. Now here's your host, Kevin Nagandi. Hey, and welcome back to the College Football Podcast. It's been a, a while, and a lot of things have changed. And I'm glad that at least we could still talk about college football as we get ready for the NFL draft in a matter of a couple weeks. And we want to make sure everybody that's listening that uh, you're safe and healthy and you're following the guidelines of staying indoors because we've got to flatten this curve in the spring and the early parts of the summer if we want to have football in the fall. That That is the one thing that stands out to me. Let's let's flatten the curve now, a little bit of the sacrifice, and, and then we could reap the benefits of talking about college football and following the sport that we all love. On the podcast today is the great Todd McShay, who's been with ESPN for over a decade, breaking things down with the NFL draft. And he also is on the road during the college football season, uh, sidelines with the Levy Greasy broadcast booth and Molly McGrath, where those guys are at fantastic games and having so much fun. McShay still finds time to carve out his mock drafts and give us some time about his thoughts about that draft that starts in a couple weeks. And he joins us here in the College Football Podcast. And then later on, we talk a little bit about his relationship with Mel Kuyper. And the one thing that stood out when Frank Caliendo impersonated Kuyper next to McShay. Enjoy. All right, we're less than uh, two weeks away from the NFL draft in the new normal. And it's great to have uh, Todd McShay join us here, uh, part of – ESPN's coverage as well as ABC's coverage and we'll see how this plays out as we try to do this the virtual way. Todd, first off, we, we do appreciate you joining us here on the podcast. What's it been like for you when it comes to gathering information compared to previous years as you, uh, as you kind of find your way through the pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's been interesting. It really has. It's, it's been so different than any other year, obviously. You know, every, everyone's understanding of what's going on and, and every GM I've talked to in the last two weeks, you know, they're just, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. Their, their IT people are working around the clock. They're worried about draft weekend and like making trades and how they're going to go through every little detail to the point where, you know, they've, they've got people in their houses setting stuff up, but they don't want people in their houses. Yeah. Because, you know, for the same reasons and, and they're talking, all the GMs are talking to each other via text saying, you know, if, if we get down to the clock and, and we're about to make a trade or want to do something, let's make sure that we can text each other just in case, you know, my Wi-Fi goes out or my kids come running in the room. It's just, it's, it's really, really strange and different. And it's been, um, it's been interesting just talking to everyone and, and how everyone's kind of dealing with the same stuff. Todd, how are they conducting the the interview process? Like, especially when when you mm-hmm. want to meet a quarterback, you you need to understand things, and you have these. You know, I, I just think of Tua Tungavailoa off the top of my head, and of course with with the tape sent to the thirty two teams of his own workout, and you don't get the chance to have your doctors look at him, and you don't get the chance to to see his personality in a room. How are how are GMs and executives and coaches handling that situation with a, each individual prospect, where they have extended questions outside of the tape? Yeah. So every year, typically, 
it's you get 30 players that you get to bring into your facility. You can't you can't work them out when you bring them to your place. You can only spend the day with them. You can you know put them on the board. You can watch tape with them. Do all those sorts of things. You can't do anything physically. This year they can't do any of that. So they they are missing out on on um you know having that time with with individuals. But they're they're still you know they're like everyone else. They're on Zoom and 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 Skype and and um, FaceTime and and just trying to spend as much time as they can with with these players. And medically, they're still sending out doctors. I mean, you know, people will tell you whatever they want to tell you, but I, I can tell you, talking to general managers, they're sending out doctors specifically to the players that they really think that they have a chance of drafting, and that's kind of how they're handling it. Do you anticipate, let's just say night number one, we have seen stuff in the past where – there's a surprise or a shocker or something's released and, and I imagine social media will be running rampant. Do you anticipate something like that happening and the, the percentages being higher considering everybody's virtual this time around? Huh. That's a good question. I mean, if I knew that I, then it wouldn't be, right? No, it, it really is a good question because I, I think you have to understand teams have been sending scouts out for 15 months, basically evaluating all of these players, you know, so they, they have so much information. So I, I think, I don't think it's going to be a big difference, but I do think in this last month or so that, that there's less information coming in. And I think it, that's what te- teams are most worried about the, these two things. One, are we missing out on something information wise? And two, what, like, what happens when I'm on the clock? draft weekend <laughs> and mm-hmm. so everyone like band I, bandwidth it those are the words i hear constantly talking to these guys because they're so worried about it but they're also it's it's interesting to talk to them because the gms that i've talked to are like all right now how do i get an edge how do mm-hmm. i use this to my advantage right yep. so that's that's been kind of the interesting part to to here when you're talking to these guys like they're so you know they understand what's going on they have wives and kids like all of us and they the day-to-day is is shocking but at the end of the day they're still trying to get an edge they're still trying to find the best players and they're still trying to figure out how they can do something better than you know the other 31 gms in the league to to try to see if they can maybe get that like tiny little bit of an edge you also look at, you know, you want to hit on the first round, the second round, the third round, but I also think about the back end when you're filling your roster up, right? And this, this is a different world when it comes to right after the draft, you see a bunch of moves and transactions because, you know, these guys are undrafted free agents that are sitting around. It feels like it's going to be more chaos after the draft as well. Do you anticipate that when, when guys are trying to fill the back end of their roster with guys, Hey, do, can we get, can we get a special teams player? This guy made it out of the seventh round. Let's go get him right now. What, what do you anticipate on that back end? Well, so what the, the few guys that I've talked to about like what their exact situations are that one of them has, a, they rented out, rented out a whole hotel. And so, they, but they can only bring nine people in, right? You got to keep it under 10. 
So they've got nine people in, but then they're trying to set up their whole draft board and, and then be able to talk to all their scouts and go back and forth. And they're <laughs> one, one GM that I talked to was saying it's frustrating because I pause. And, and then the, the, there's like that one and a half second delay that we have on TV. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's called a delay, but, <laughs> but like, I, 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 I don't know if they're listening to me or what's going on. I was like, yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a delay. <laughs> but so that, so they're going back and forth going through all that kind of different stuff. But what I've learned from talking to them is that their scouts are, I mean, they're lining it up just like they always do. But each individual scout is going to be hustling at the end of the draft and right when the draft ends to be able to, to call or to text a player and, and try to put a, a deal in place for $5,000, $7,000, whatever it is to try to get those players in. But I, it'll be a little bit of chaos, but it won't be that much different from, um, from year to year in terms of, of how it's handled that way. All right, let's let's move on to the players because I, I've been chomping at the bit. Uh, I, when you look at this draft, it's it's obviously highlighted by the quarterbacks, like every single draft, with the Burrow and the intrigue at Tua Tunga Bailoa and and which team is going to make a move or does does Miami just sit there at five? What's the latest you're hearing right now about Tunga Bailoa, Herbert, as well as Jordan Love? Miami loves loves Joe Burrow, and they would love to go up and get him. They're trying everything they can possibly try to go to figure out a way to do it, but I don't think Cincinnati's going to allow them to to get Joe. I think Joe's just going to be the first overall pick, and I think Cincy's going to take him. Then Miami's got a, a decision to make. You know, do they do they use some of those picks that they have? They've got what is it? Um, they've got five in the first two rounds, six in the top seventy overall. Are they going to try to package a couple of those picks and move up to, let's say, Detroit at number three and, and make a move with them in order to make sure that, that they go get to a tongue of Iloa? Now, I keep hearing about Justin Herbert and Miami, and I don't know if that's – I know they love Joe Burrow. I think they like Tua a lot. <laughs> um, but I've, you know, I've heard some whispers, but not from anyone within the Miami organization that, um, about Justin Herbert, but I've heard, I've heard some of those rumors. And then I, you know, I, I think Jordan loves a, a better player and I think he's going to be a better player if developed properly. So that's, that's the interesting part. You get the Chargers sitting right behind them and, you know, all the movement that we've seen with the, with the quarterbacks, but, uh, I, I think, I don't think we'll see more than three in the top ten go, and Jordan Love may be the fourth, and I'll 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 uh, mail a check. But. <laughs> well, let's let, let's make sure everybody understands the backstory to that is uh, you and I, as well as Mel, were on the set Sports Center uh, during the week of the combine, yep. and you guys were going back and forth about Jordan Love and Justin Herbert. I want to tell the audience that's listening. This is real. Like this, there's no like, hey, I'm going to take a stance. You take a stance and we'll just, we'll just talk it out and debate. No, none of that. You guys are passionate about what you believe in and the research that you guys do. And you are all about Jordan Love being the third quarterback taken in this draft or should be. And, and Mel broke me, by the way. Yes, he did. So, so yes, we he did. were, we were going to have a $5,000 bet. Yep. 
to go to the V Foundation. Obviously, like, couldn't be a better, uh, you know, a better situation. Everyone's going to win. But we were supposed to have a $5,000 bet on our final mock draft. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting on that set that day. And, and I said something about Jordan Love. And I was like, listen, he's just, he's a better quarterback. I like him more than Justin Herbert. And he's like, all right, so let's make the bet right now. And then we, <laughs> and then you made that, uh, yeah, that it was, it was finalized right there. Well, listen, I, it, there was, there was blood in the water. I had to jump in and just say, listen, let's finalize this right now. We can't leave this hang. Um, so my job was to make sure that we saw a handshake and that you guys were committed to what you guys were saying on both sides for the audience. So I, I thought you, you know, nailed it that day. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you guys were really good with that because honestly, you guys, you still believe it. Now, Teams may defer and teams yep. may, may say we think, uh, differently, but there's one conversation that we had earlier this week on Sports Center with where Mel brought up the, the Raiders at 12 and you, you like that concept and you could see that concept that if we do not have four quarterbacks go in the top 10, you could see somewhere where the Raiders sitting at 12 find a way to make a move or find a way to make the, the pick there with potentially Jordan Love. Yeah, I could see it. I really could. I, you know, we both know Gruden and yep. he, he's just, he's always looking for the next quarterback and, and looking to see someone different. He does, he loves veterans though. He loves guys that have some experience and know the game. So that'll be, that'll be the interesting part. But, uh, but I, 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 mean, I could see it. I could definitely see it. And I, listen, I, there are guys in the league that I talk to that really like Herbert more than, than Jordan Love. And there are some guys in the league that think that Jordan Love is going to be so much better than Herbert. And it's, it's interesting to just like hear the differences when you talk to one guy versus the next guy. Right. But, yep. but, um, but yeah, Gruden, you never know. And he just, he loves quarterbacks. It's like a quantity thing. He wants all of them. <laughs> <laughs> quarterbacks. Yeah, look at look at the tape in Tampa, and, and also look where he found his comfort zone. He found his comfort zone with veterans like Rich Gannon, and he's aware yeah. of Brad Johnson. He brought in a bunch of guys, and then he was super hard on Chris Sims, who was a young quarterback. Like you, you mentioned, he loves veterans. So you, you see where he brings in Marcus Mariota there, and potentially if you have a Jordan Love sit and watch and wait and you have the veteran you could lean on. And, and of course, let's not forget about the scenario with Carr, but he, he falls in and out of, uh, out of love with his quarterbacks every single week on every single pass. Yes, yes, he does. That's a great way to describe it. If Tua Tungabailoa didn't get hurt in November, would he be the number one pick in your mind? I think he would be. I, I the, <laughs> If he, it's interesting because you go back and you have to study it. And in the last 10 years, there have been seven quarterbacks who have, who have been first round draft picks, who have been injured in college. And all of, all seven of them have been injured in the NFL and they've got to be available, right? I mean, that's the most important thing. So even though the hip injury was like, was the, the final piece of the puzzle, if you will, medically, but he's been injured almost every single year of his career. And while like you get to know him and he's the best dude, like he, everyone loves him. Everyone loves playing with him and playing for him. He's so talented that it doesn't take a super scout to figure that out. 
but the the medical part is the difference. And even I'm not if it wasn't for the hip, I think it would be a toss up, and I think it would be a bigger debate. Uh, but I, I do think that that's kind of the tiebreaker. But if again, if if you were just telling me guaranteed ten years, crystal ball that they're both going to be healthy, I would take Tua over Joe Burrow, but it would be so close. And I, I, I'm shocked even thinking that going back to like last summer studying the, the tape between the two, because it was like, it, it wasn't even a debate. Joe Burrow was like a fourth or fifth round pick. And then all of a sudden he, he just, he exploded. How does a kid explode? Like, I mean, we saw that with Kyler Murray as well, right? Make that, that jump. But it also helps that you have a, a coach in Arizona that, that understands the system in Kingsbury where he can make that connection right. with Kyler Murray. How does Joe Burrow though make that jump where, you know, I think Mel had mentioned in August he was potentially a seventh rounder and maybe a fringe guy to you saying fourth or fifth round to now the number one pick in the draft. And he rewrote all the record books. He wins the national championship, the Heisman, and he does it in the SEC against outstanding defenses. How do you, how do you, uh, explain that type of jump in a matter of 15 games? He needed, he needed game experience. That's it. I mean, he, and no one knew. Nobody knew. I mean, even talking like Urban Meyer, he he always loved him, but he was you know fourth on the depth chart at, at one point. And so he need he just needed to go get experience. Then he needed to have Joe Brady come in and and let him rip this past year. You know, give him just give him the opportunity to open things up and go play. And I think that was the difference when you go. And study the 2018 tape. It was about running the ball. I don't want to say it was archaic, but it was old school football and, and they just didn't allow him to do what he does best. And this year when like shotgun spread it out, even Clyde Edwards there moving him in the slot. And now you got four receivers or sometimes five receiver sets. It looks like and, and just letting him make decisions and letting him go and throw the ball all around the yard. That's when he finally came into his own. But he needed, you know, he needed game experience. Everyone does. And mm-hmm. it, it took, what was it, 13 games, I think, in 2018 where he developed. And then he came back this year, and you could almost see it in the very first week of the season. He looked different. His confidence was different. He was carrying himself differently than he did a year, you know, the year prior. And, um, and then he had, and Brady just, he, he brought out the best in him. He just allowed him to go play and, and, and be who he is. And I think, you know, if it's Cincinnati or whoever it is that you've got to learn from that. Like you, you can't put him in a situation where, where the game slows down. He plays best when it's sped up and can just go out and, and throw the ball and, and, and play fast. That's fascinating. And, and you mentioned, you know, when you look back at his biggest plays, it's always fast, right? It, it, it's the, yeah. it's, it's the scramble against Georgia. It's what he's doing against Auburn. It's what he's, he's dealing with the pass rush against uh, Texas and he's still finding a way to, to, to get the ball in the right, what, right windows and, um, and getting the ball out early. That's yeah. what he, I mean, the two things that really jump out about him. Well, three, one, Inside the pocket, he's, he's like Brady. He's, he's like Aaron Rodgers. Like he just has a feel. He's always working well inside the pocket. The second thing is 
he will put the ball up early and allow his receivers to go get it. And he, he will feed on you if you're, if the defensive back has his back to you. He, like, he, he knows that like, my guy's going to go get it. And so he'll take a chance and that creates his own windows that way. And the third thing is, I've, I've watched so much tape on Joe Burrow <laughs> getting hit and knocked down by like, you know, 310 pound dudes in the SEC and popping up and not just like kind of carrying himself up and, and working like popping up and ready to go. And then the next play, he'll hang in the pocket and take a hit again. And if you really study quarterbacks, after they take that big hit, usually either the coordinator is going to call a run play or they're going to get the ball out quickly because they don't want to be a part of it. Uh, he doesn't care. He mm-hmm. doesn't, he doesn't flinch. He's so tough. I know, what is he, 220 pounds, but he is as tough as a quarterback that you'll ever see. And it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not surprising that he grew up in a, a family of football. Yeah, and, and it carries weight inside the huddle each and every time you do that. They, they play for you and they want to, they want to yep. do the extra things for you. Let's move on from the quarterbacks to the wide receivers. How would you group this, this set of wide receivers, especially when we could, we could see a dozen go in the first two rounds, maybe two dozen in the first three rounds. How would you compare this class to, to ones we've seen in the past, including that 2004 one led by Larry Fitzgerald? Yeah. I mean, that, that group was, was great. Uh, 2015, we had six in the first round and that's in the last decade. It's the only time that we've had six. I think this year, I, I would be shocked if we if we got through the first night of the draft and there wasn't five. It's going to start with Jerry Judy from Bama. Um, C.D. Lamb is going to be right after him, in my opinion, coming out of Oklahoma. Then Henry Ruggs, the other Alabama wide receiver, is going to go. Brandon Ayuk is is the most underrated receiver in this year's class coming out of Arizona State. So good after the catch. Uh, Justin Jefferson is going to be, in my opinion, the fifth, fourth or fifth receiver but will be one of the five that come off the board. So those first three, Judy, Lamb, and Ruggs, are going to be in somewhere in the top 15, 17. And every team in the league, if you talk to them, has those three, not necessarily in that order, but those are the top three guys, and they all have first-round grades. And then Jefferson and Ayuk will, will be the next two. And then it'll be interesting. T. Higgins has a chance coming out of Clemson, 6'4", 220-pound, big physical uh, wide receiver. I don't think he's going to wind up being a first-rounder, but he he would be the most likely to be that sixth guy. But if you're talking about the first three rounds, I think upwards of 18 to 20. Mm. And, um, yeah, you, you're right. you got to go back to, like, 2004 to even compare it in terms of the depth. It might not be six in the first round, but it's going to be one of the best groups we've seen in, in terms of the first three rounds um, in a couple of decades. Yeah, you can get a steal potentially in the second round with Pittman and Chenault. It just depends on when you're yeah. picking, right, and what fits your system. I love Michael Pittman. He's going to be a steal in the second round. You know, every year we see – we see like three or four players in the second round that turn out to be better than, you know, most players in the first round. And I, I actually was on ESPN.com the other day and they, they were going through every pick in the second round. And there were 17 guys that were starters 
or like stars, they were, they were calling it, uh, which is interesting. Out of 32 picks, 17 guys that were like key players, starters in, in their rookie year, mm. you know? So mm-hmm. uh, Michael Pittman coming out of USC is going to be that next guy. I'm, I'm sure of it. Could you make a case too that when you talk about that second round, and it's a segue here that you're going to find also a ton of running back quality, not not quantity, but a ton of quality here. And it's the Jonathan Taylors of the world who, who you know, we could see DeAndre Swift. Uh, I'm not sure if you have him going in the first round, but guys like that that, that find their way uh, in that the late part of that first round, early part of the second round that have a major impact. Yeah, DeAndre Swift is the only running back coming out of Georgia in the, in this year's class, where if you talk to everyone in the league, that, that that's the only guy who has a true first round grade. After that though, the depth, you're right. It's so good. Jonathan Taylor, he's the only running back in college football history to go three straight years with 1900 plus rushing yards. Now he fumbles the ball a little bit too much. He's got to get better in pass protection, but he is, is instinctive. A back as you'll see, and he's not like the, you know, throw out that Wisconsin thing that everyone is thinking with the the running back. He has explosive speed, and he he really he's going to be a game changer in the league, and he's going to be a starter. Yeah. KK Dobbins out of uh, out of Ohio State is the best pass protection running back in this class, and he's really instinctive and can catch the ball. He's probably going to be the second back after Swift. Um, and then I, I mentioned Clyde Edwards Alaire, who came out of, I don't want to say came out of nowhere, but he exploded onto the scene this past year. And, um, just the way he runs, how low to the ground he is, how tough he is. And then the ability to put him in the slot mm. and then put him out wide and know that he can actually go run a route and catch the ball. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of depth. I think all four of those guys are going to wind up going somewhere in the top 50 overall picks. And, and you mentioned, uh, um, you know, the, the speed that Taylor has. He, he, he's a, he's a sprinter. That's like world class speed. J.K. Dobbins has the durability. If, if this draft was 20 years ago, uh, you could see three of those running backs go in the top 15, right? It's just, it's just the way the game has evolved. It's just a different way. It's, it doesn't mean that these guys aren't, potential first round talents. It's just how running backs are used now. Is that the storyline here with running backs the last few years? Yeah, it's part of it. There's, it's also, there's going to be four or five offensive tackles that go in the, in the first round. And then once that runs out, teams are are panicked because there's not another one. Uh, (laughs) Defensive linemen are going to go quickly. And then after, after the first round, you're really struggling. So I think, Teams with wide receivers and running backs are confident that we can go get one in the second or third round versus some of the other positions. So, but yeah, go, going back to Taylor, you, you just mentioned it and the, the Ohio State tape was fun to watch because I, there's not many guys that run away from those defensive backs from Ohio State and he mm-hmm. did like mm-hmm. just run, running away. Like that kind of speed, you can't coach it, man. You can't coach it, and he's got it. 
And he's a good, smart kid. And let's go to the tackles here yeah. because the tackles are freak shows. I mean, Makai Becton, when you watch him at 6'7", 365, run a 5'10", five, five, 40, you're just like, your jaw just like, are you kidding me? And then to top it off, Tristan Wirfs and what he did at, at the combine, running a 4'8", and then the vertical, like, this is, this is the guy. Vertical. <laughs> Come on, that's ridiculous. Like, wait, wait, who's a tackle? Uh, what, what are you and, seeing from these guys? And, and Jedrick Wills is the best of all of them on tape, but he just, you know, he didn't run a 485. So, <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting to watch. But again, like, they're going to run out quickly. So that's what teams are really looking at. Like Jedrick Wills is going to go somewhere in the top 10 coming out of Bama. Tristan Wirth, as you mentioned, with that, with the speed and explosiveness that he has, Mikai Becton. But then after the, I would say five offensive tackles, teams are really, really concerned about where you're going to get the next guy. Mm. When, when we bring up like, you and I love those kind of numbers, uh, you know, a 40 time with a tackle. But how does that translate for scouts on the field when it comes to speed and the vertical? Does, does, that, does that just show that he's a freak of an athlete and he can handle a lot of things? How do you translate that on the field? If you, if you study the history of it, and it's, it's weird, uh, because it, like an offensive lineman's never going to run 40 yards, right? Mm-hmm. But the 40 yard dash, correlates to NFL success more than any other workout. Like vertical jump, broad jump, all those other things, like short shuttle, all those things. Now, for interior offensive line, the short shuttle actually is the thing that correlates most. But for tackles, it's arm length and 40-yard dash that if you if you just look over the history, the guys who have the longest arms and run the fastest typically go on to have the best NFL careers. And it, that, again, it doesn't mean that you're going to have success, but it, it's, it's one of those things that, that if you study it over a long, a long period of time, you can see that typically those guys are going to wind up being the, the, the best players. Now, the big storyline, of course, will be the quarterbacks and where Tua goes potentially, uh, after we see Burrow off the board against the Bengals, uh, with the Bengals and then Herbert and what happens with Love and, and then, of course, the wide receivers will be a big storyline on on day one. But when I look at the defense here, especially in the top ten, I have a feeling five, ten years from now, we're going to talk about this defensive class in the top ten. And I'm bringing up, of course, Chase Young. You have him as the only one in your top number one tier. But behind him, his teammate Akuda, who is an outstanding cornerback. You got Isaiah Simmons. You got Derek Brown. How do you look at – these guys in the top 10 and the overall defense in the first round, especially on the back end with the cornerbacks and the safeties. Yeah. If it wasn't, I mean, if it wasn't for quarterbacks, that's all we would be talking about because Chase Young, he's, he's not the Boses and I've talked about it a bunch before. And I, I, I love both of the, the Boses coming out of school and I didn't care what they ran. You know, Joey ran a four, eight something. Nick ran a four, seven, eight. I think it was. Um, but the leverage and the hand usage and all of that, that they were NFL ready. Chase Young is NFL ready. He's not as technically sound as the Boses, but he's more <laughs> athletic. He, mm-hmm. He's more explosive. Like if you just watch like the speed that he has, the bend, the athleticism, and then uh, the 16 and a half sacks he had, six of them were strip sacks. He knows how to get that ball loose. And like, 
you think about how important that is. Like that the strip sack is huge, and he that's what he excels at. So yeah, Chase Young is to me the number one overall player in this class. Okuda, uh, Jeff Okuda, the cornerback from Ohio State, is one of the best corners we've seen in the last four or five years coming out. Like he's that good. Um, Derek Brown is so overlooked. The Auburn defensive tackle, you put him at nose tackle and he will work your center. I mean, he will bull rush that center and drive him right back in your quarterback's face. And he does it over and over again. Uh, I, I, I think a team's going to wind up probably like seven or eight wind up getting Derek Brown and, and we'll look back and say, how did he, how did he last that long? And then Isaiah Simmons is, he's not, He's not as polished in terms of taking on blocks and, and instincts with the, the run game, but find me another six foot three, 240 pound guy that can play in the box, play in the slot, cover your tight end, cover some wide receivers, and then go play free safety. I, that play against Ohio State will be ingrained in my mind forever when mm-hmm. he was playing single high safety, read the quarterback's eyes, and went about 30, 35 yards and went up and took the ball away like he was the wide receiver. He's, there are not many dudes that can go do that. So when you're talking about like Chase Young, Okuda, Derek Brown, and Simmons, all, I think arguably five of the six or seven best players in this entire draft, but someone's going to get a steal because we know that Burrow's going to go. We know that two are, Tonga Bailoa is going to go. Uh, Jerry Judy will probably sneak in there because the team's looking for him. So someone's going to get a real steal with one of these defensive players. You know, my favorite line from Isaiah Simmons is they asked him what position he plays, and he, and he said defense because uh, he he's the evolution. You know, this is where we go now when we're looking for that hybrid linebacker that can literally do anything and everything. And Venables did a great job with him at Clemson and finding a way to, really to make sure he was playing a huge role while they lost a lot of that Sunday talent from a year ago uh, to now replace it in last year and what they did. And Simmons – Simmons is a fantastic kid, and I love the talent uh, on the defensive side. Is there one guy or multiple guys that we're not talking about that, you know, you think day two, day three that would stand out? Ross Blacklock from TCU defensive tackle, I think, is is one of the more underrated players in this entire draft. He's just an up-the-field, frustrating type of, <laughs> type of defensive tackle. It's just always – Kind of in your in your backyard. He's just always frustrating. I, I think he's. I mean, no no one really knows that name, right? Nope. Yeah, I, I think I think that he and maybe he could go late first, maybe early second. But I think uh, I think Blacklocks has got a he's got a chance to be one of the better players in this class. I mean, I, Antoine Winfield Jr. Oh. So good. Uh, I'm so glad you brought him up. And I know you love him. That Penn State game, he was incredible. So I'm glad you brought him up. Go ahead. He was incredible. The, so Kuiper, Kuiper, once a year, he gets me. Once a year. And <laughs> he kept on mentioning Antoine Winfield Jr. And I hadn't done his tape from the preseason. I didn't have any Minnesota games. I, I was just, I was trying to catch up on him. And so I, I put on that Penn State tape. The first play, I don't, I have no idea what happened. The second play, he goes and takes, I think it was a wide receiver or a tight end, 
like, 10 yards down the field was trying to block him, and he just get out of the way and then makes a tackle in the open field. And then the third play, he opens his hips, turns and runs and goes and high points the ball and takes, you know, gets the interception, takes the ball away. And after those three plays, I was like, oh, Kuiper was right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and for our audience, uh, listen, when when you guys were first introduced, uh, I think people were like, oh, who's this young kid with Todd McShay trying to, you know, ruffle the feathers with Mel Kuiper? (laughs) You, You guys have developed such a great relationship and respect for each other. How would you describe... You know, you and you and Kuiper going back and forth, starting in like you know late January, leading up to the draft. What's it like for you guys? It's interesting. We we're like six months a year, really good friends. (laughs) (laughs) But but we're also like, it's like any friend that you have. Just passionate about something, you can get in an argument. I can, I legitimately sometimes get upset with him. And he legitimately will get upset with me. But the second we're done, everything's fine. I'll never forget. Uh, it was, I think the first time we ever got in an argument on, on air, I was, uh, so Gary Horton started me in this business. He worked for Bill Belichick, uh, as a scout. He, he was in Tampa Bay. He was, um, he worked for Arizona State. He started me in this business and got me into it. And the first year that I was doing it, I was down in Charlotte and it was for ESPNU. We were doing the draft and I, I got in, we had a, you know, a back and forth and he, he was, Mel was in, in New York for the draft and, and Gary called me right after and was like, Hey, Todd, Mel's really upset. And I was like, Oh no, like, no, he's, he's pissed. Like, you can't, you can't go back and forth with him like that. You cannot have an argument like that. Um, you, you embarrassed him. He went, he went through this whole thing. And I was so, I felt horrible. I was like 27 years old. You know, I was just, I was trying to like go back and forth and thought we were doing the right thing. And then I hear Kuiper in the background giggling. <laughs> he grabbed Gary's phone and was like, McShay, I don't ever care. I don't ever care. I love it. <laughs> uh, that is an awesome story. And then that perfectly describes Mel. Mel, Mel is, Mel is so cool about everything and, and he's passionate about what he does. But yes. at the same time, like, you know, once you're done talking about it, he moves on and, and he's, he's good. He's as good as anybody you could ever see and talk to, you know, and that's that's what I love about. I was sick, I was sick last week, and he called and checked in on me, <laughs> you know, and and then and then I talked to him two days ago, checking in on his his family and and making sure everything was okay. Like that, we we definitely go back back and forth at each other, and we we're competitive, um, but but I love that guy, and he's no one's been more supportive of me in my career. Than, than Mel Kuyper. And I, you know, I'll always be appreciative of, of what he's done. That's amazing. And, and one of the, the reasons why you guys have hit the mainstream, um, we all know what you guys do. It, it's just the skit with, uh, Caliendo. Uh, <laughs> when, when you first saw that skit and then you saw it being played nonstop, what was it like yeah. for you, especially the ta, 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 ta? Like, what was your reaction to it all? So 
First of all, he was in makeup for eight hours, I think. <laughs> Seth Markman, Seth Markman, I'll never forget. I, I was trying to go back to Boston that day. And Seth's like, you, you can't. We, we have to tape this thing. Uh, Caliendo's been in makeup for eight hours already. <laughs> I was like, all right, gotcha. And so we wound up taping it. I, I think it was like eight or nine o'clock at night, whatever it was. And we, I think we were on for like, I don't know, 45, 50 minutes of going back and forth. And then we, we were, we were done. We were finishing up and Frank came over and was like, all right, is there anything, anything you can tell me about Mel that, um, that I may, maybe didn't see? And he said he had watched, uh, what did he, he said like 40 hours of tape on Mel just to get the voice down? Something crazy. <laughs> But so at the end, I was like, um, hmm, let me think. I was like, you know, Mel says my first name and I don't like, I don't like my first name. I, I, I still to this day yell at my mom about Todd. I think it's an 80s. Like Todd? Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> but Mel says my first name more than any human being has ever said it. <laughs> and then and he's like, so we did all these takes and all these different things. And he's like, all right, let's just do one take and we'll be done. And he went back to wherever he was sitting and he, and he did that whole, and I was sitting there. He's like, Todd, 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 Todd. And that's it. <laughs> that's incredible. That is, that, that, uh, and, and here's the thing. No one at home knows that you don't like your name. And, and that's Caliendo's little dig at you. You, on that. So you, you, you got the exclusive on that. <laughs> that's great. Uh, before we let you go, uh, we do want to ask this and, and I'm curious about it too. How are you handling things? Like, what's it been like for you? Has anything changed? You know, you're, you're obviously not making trips to Bristol, but you're still working. What's it like for you to, um, during this, this worldwide crisis and this pandemic yep. where we're all at home and we have kids, um, and you're balancing your work at home? What's it been like for you? Well, I've, I've moved, I've moved studios twice. And now it's in my, in my kid's playroom. <laughs> uh, um, my wife and kids left to go to get away simply because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing TV and working all, all the time. So they had to kind of go and get away and I'm not going to see them for a month and I miss them like crazy. That's, wow. that's been the hardest thing. Like I'm sitting here and I, you know, I've got papers and notes and stuff everywhere and I've got my tape over there and the studio and in the, the kids playroom. Um, but the hardest part is FaceTiming with them every day and, and just, you know, I'm missing them. I miss them a lot. It's tough. Yeah. I, I can only imagine. You know, I, I always was crazy and I was always working a ton, but I would come home from Bristol after four days of TV. Yep. I would, you know, I would, I would at least be around at night and now it, I don't, I don't get to see him at all. It, 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 it sucks. It's tough. Yeah. Cause it's a good distraction. You know, you, you also for like one or two hours, you're not thinking about mock drafts, right? And right. You're, you're helping, you're helping your wife, uh, because, you know, uh, let's be honest, when we're in this business, you know, our spouses are doing a lot of the stuff that, that we would like to share with, but we can't. And, and now it, it's taken on the task of all by herself. And uh, that's a credit to you guys and understanding like you're, you're locked in your work and your job. But at the same time, our kids are the one thing I've noticed Todd about this whole thing. Our kids are more adjustable than 
then we I give know, them credit. I know. They're dealing with it way better than, than, than I am. Yes. It's incredible. Like, I, at one point, I told my wife yesterday, I said, do we need to, like, take them for a car ride? And she's like, you're thinking way too much. She's like, they are so happy that they can run around and they could be outside and they can come back yep. in the house. Why, why, why would you just keep them locked up in a car and just drive around? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just thinking that maybe she might see something and she's like, stop it. They're good. And, and she's like, you, you, you just, you're thinking for them, but you're thinking like a 45 year old when they're, you know, they're seven, six and three and they're just happy you're home and we're playing around. I'm like, that's a good point. So, yeah. Um, I've also learned I'm, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at keeping like the kitchen together. <laughs> I'm decent at dishes, but I but I, I procrastinate. Yeah. I'm terrible at laundry. I, I can't fold anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll, we'll make you in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> when it comes to being a spouse, you're like a sixth or seventh round pick right now. If the laundry's yeah, in you, and all that. Right? <laughs> hey, Todd, we do appreciate you joining us here in the College Football Podcast, and and we know the next two weeks are a grind. So thanks for carving out the time, and and of course, stay safe to you and your family. You got it, Kev. Same to you. Take care, bud.